When someone has a mental health crisis, there aren't a lot of options for getting immediate care. In most cases, the only option is to call 911 and have police officers arrive at the scene. But advocates are working to change this in Chicago. Under a plan known as Treatment Not Trauma, trained mental health workers would become first responders for some 911 dispatches. The plan also calls for expanding mental health centers and staffing, and it got a boost in Mayor Johnson's 2024 budget. Here to remind us what the campaign is all about and where things stand as we look ahead is one person who's been pushing for Treatment Not Trauma, Eric Reinhardt. He's a resident physician and political anthropologist of public health and law at Northwestern University. Welcome, doctor. Thank you. So, you know, we're talking about how responses to 911, people call 911 for lots of reasons. This push for treatment, not trauma, what would this apply to specifically to have people besides police respond? Yeah, a wide range of, of events, um, mental health, behavioral crises. Uh, last time I was here, we talked about uh, Antonio uh, Greer, uh, who was killed after having by, by police after having a mental health crisis. Um, there's a, another situation that illustrates this well. Um, I was actually involved in a few months ago with alderperson Rosana Rodriguez, somebody in her ward. Her teenage son was shot and killed right in front of their home by a rival gang. Uh, and the mother, the day after, uh, she had not been able to sleep at all. She was acutely intoxicated. She was beside herself. And she was on the street acting as if she had a gun, refused to leave a spot. Uh, the police were called, and she was very upset, very confrontational. Um, Rosana called me and asked me to come help her defuse this situation. And I, went, I work as a resident psychiatrist at Northwestern, so I work in emergency departments often. I see patients in these kinds of situations come in. And often what would happen is that she would be given um, a sedative, an antipsychotic, involuntarily, uh, kept in a dark room in the emergency department, and likely sent to a psychiatric hospital for probably the state hospital, probably for about a week or something like that, and be released. What we were to able to do instead, and that would be the ideal scenario. Another scenario is that she confronts police officers, assaults them perhaps, is taken to jail, maybe gets a, a criminal sentence. That would be a very likely scenario also. What we were able to do was to go with a squad car on the corner, uh, towards which this woman was particularly uh, attentive, we were able to defuse the situation to get community involved, to get other mothers who had lost children to gun violence to come and sit with this woman. And ultimately, this we went during the day, and this mm -hmm. extended into the night, and there was a vigil uh, that we organized, that Rosanna and um, Eric Ramos, the, the ward superintendent up there, uh, organized and brought people together. Without that kind of intervention, I don't know what would have happened. It could have been a violent encounter. This woman could have been harmed by police. She could have assaulted police. It would not have, have ended well, I expect. And what you needed in that circumstance was not me, somebody who's a doctor, trained as a psychiatrist. You needed community. And Rosanna had this imagination that, that I, in this very dire situation, that I would have special skills that would be important. And I can understand it, that why that would be thought. But really what was needed was just people who cared about this person. And that's what ultimately happened. I left. I wasn't important in this scenario at all. But what I was important in doing with Rosanna and Eric Ramos was temporizing the situation, keeping police at bay, diffusing, and allowing community to come in and take care of somebody. So it's situations like that that TNT would also be responding to. The situation you're talking about there, one of the main resources it sounds like it, it needs is time. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a lengthy process you discussed, which obviously if you've got lots of people going out to events that take that long, you're going to need a lot of people to, to do this. I mean, do you see that as a, as a problem? 
I, I mean, I see that as an inevitable part of public care systems. I mean, we have a lot of police officers around the city of Chicago. I, I live in the downtown area, and I see squad cars constantly. There's like four on a block regularly. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of money that goes to pay for those public employees. If you're going to have care systems, you need to invest in them in a similar kind of way. What, we have 13, 14,000 police officers? We have 1,000 uh, spots, jobs, and aren't all filled at the Chicago Department of Public Health, and almost none of them are community health worker positions. But we need to have thousands of community health worker positions so as to be able to respond to these kinds of situations and other medical situations, not just psychiatric or behavioral or kind of uh, circumstances like I just described. So yeah, you need a lot of employees. I don't see that as a problem. I see that as an inevitable part of building effective public care systems. And, and part of this is is changing what we, what many, not I say not everyone, yeah. but what many of us think as how long or, or the best way to respond to something like that. I think there might be some people who think, well, you, you know, you call and that problem gets taken care of within a half hour or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. It takes patience. <laughs> Negotiating the reality of grief, of loss, of anger, of somebody who's suffering from dementia and, you know, it needs help in a, in a particular circumstance, that, that you can't just go do that in 30 minutes. We work on efficiency models in the hospital. It doesn't work very well in community care settings if you're doing that. And that's why a lot of our community care isn't very good, because we don't have people, like you're saying, who are properly employed, compensated, and trained to provide that kind of relational care, That the, the main ingredient of which is patience, empathy and patience. Yeah, I mean, does it? will it also require a shift in how, how the general public thinks about people who might be going through a mental health crisis or have mental mental health issues? It does require that. It also, I think more importantly, it requires, because this will come first, I think, it requires reimagining who can respond to need. So there's been a debate within the American mental health infrastructure for over 50 years about who is appropriate to respond to different kinds of circumstances. Should it be a psychiatrist? Should it be a psych psychologist? Should it be a social worker? And usually that debate has been around which professionally trained worker is most appropriate for XYZ scenario. And what's been excluded from that is the role of non-professional workers. We had a movement in the 1950s and 60s in the U.S. that was quite strong called the social psychiatry movement. And what that movement did, especially in New York, but also in Chicago, was to roll out non-professional mental health worker systems. They were extremely effective. It was people who, you know, they didn't have a college degree necessarily, let alone a psychology or psychiatry degree or whatever. And they live in their neighborhoods in, in the Bronx or in the south side of Chicago. And they're recruited from those to work through a local community mental health center, and they're trained, and then they work with their neighbors. And somebody has need, they respond to it. It doesn't matter whether it's technically a medical or psychiatric need, et cetera. They're responding to everyday needs that people have. What that did in terms of diffusing and preventing mental health crises and professional mental health needs was astounding. But it fell apart because the funds for it were funneled through the professional workers who wanted control over these programs. And when the community care workers began to challenge how things were designed and to use their lived experience and their knowledge from being on the job, say, no, we actually we should do it this way or that way, they got pushback. And what happened in the most famous kind of example in New York, uh, the Lincoln Hospital program, was that the, basically the whole program was tanked by, tanked by the psychiatrists and psychologists who ran it rather than see see themselves cede control of the program to the community. And what's at stake in that kind of circumstance, which we still see now, is an imagination of who it is that can provide care, who can cure, who has authority. And we need to shift our understanding of mental health away from top-down, professionalized, medicalized models of mental health to much more relational, community-based models. And you see changing the model in that way and also changing who we think of as can respond to this as an opportunity for residents to build trust in government. How yeah. so? 
Well, right now, you know, so contact points with any kind of system are really important. So you walk into the hospitals that I work at, for example, and they have a whole cadre of people who greet you and respond to you in particular kinds of ways. And they're trying to produce these contact points, like any service industry, basically, that produce a pleasant experience where you um, have positive relationships to a particular kinds of institution. Government's the same kind of way. So what are our contact points? You have schools. Teachers are a really important part of having contact with public systems. But in a lot of Chicago neighborhoods, as around the country, as around the country, Police are one of the major contact points, particularly for adults. Welfare offices that have been made to be particularly obstructive and difficult and unpleasant to negotiate. These contact points do not inspire trust in public systems. They don't make the electorate want to support the expansion of public systems. And these contact points have, over the last 40 years, been in large part deliberately manufactured to be unpleasant. Part of a kind of Reagan-era holdover that now we still live with, which is the idea that government is bad and we should disincentivize people from wanting government. And so let's make welfare really, really difficult to get so people are motivated to go get jobs. Let's make public services difficult to get so they want to go instead get them on the private market so we can defund the public services and inflate kind of market-oriented uh, interactions. So this, these contact points haven't been produced in a way that inspires trust. Care workers... That's an opportunity to build a different kind of contact point where you know your local government by the people that it employs on your block, your neighbors, who you trust, who provide care to your other neighbors. And that, and that when you need something and you don't know how to get it, you contact them and they connect you with the local community care center where there are, yeah, there are psychiatrists and social workers and psychologists. There are also people who can help you negotiate negotiate bureaucratic um, welfare bureaucracy, for example, that is very difficult, or, t or tax help, or all, all these kinds of everyday services that people need, but they don't know where to get them. These kinds of integrated care systems can inspire trust, both through the services they provide, but also by recruiting community members to be part of them themselves. I feel like I can hear the, the cynics already saying a person who's going through a mental health crisis that makes them potentially dangerous, they don't need community. They need a police officer to protect themselves and everyone else from them. They don't need community. They need a mental health professional to help them with that specific crisis. What do you what do you say to you know those cynics are out there? What do you say to them? Yeah, uh, I think a lot of these these responses are reflex responses that data don't actually support. So we have a um, a pilot program in Chicago. We've had it for several years now. The care pilot that has two different wings. There's the co-responder model where you have a police officer respond with a mental health professional or you have just mental health responders on another wing. What we found is that in the over thousand events to which these people have responded, you've never needed the police officer there. There are no arrests, no incidents of violence. This assumption that, sub that police respond to something because it's potentially really dangerous and violent is not in fact borne out by data neither in Chicago nor around the country. So the reflex response that we need police for everything, I think we really need to push back against. It's not supported by data. It's not a rational way to design systems. In terms of the, the reflex response to imagine that we need professionals to be responding, I think this is born of a long history of classist and racist dynamics that have imagined um, that we need to build systems based on some kind of savior model. The communities don't have the ability to care for themselves. We need to care for those who cannot care for themselves, etc. And that's often been wealthier, wider communities imagining social work type models, nonprofit organizations, charitable foundations that go in and we're going to help all these communities because they can't do it themselves. What they lack are not the, the ability or the desire to care for one another, but the resources that have been systematically extracted from these communities for a very long period of time. I think we need to check our impulse to think that we need professionals to be able to talk to people, to build relationships. And data bears this out. If you look at medical training, for example, this is just one example, I suspect yeah. it applies to other professional areas. Doctors, as they go through their training, 
they lose the capacity. Their capacity to be empathetic decreases over time. Their capacity to build meaningful relationships decreases with their patients over time. Medical training doesn't augment those things. It takes away. It professionalizes people out of community. And there's also data that shows, for example, all the different psychotherapeutic modalities. You have cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, DBT, supportive psychotherapy. The common ingredient that makes these things useful is not actually the particular mode of therapy that somebody uses, but the quality of the relationship with the provider that's built with the patient. And so we think about, okay, who can build effective, supportive relationships with people. It's not necessarily those who have the most extensive, fanciest technological training or whatever. It, it's people who care, people who are intrinsically invested in their communities and their neighbors, people who are given some, some training. You can train people in cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. Very short courses, you can provide basic care that's, really, that's effective. We've seen this in, in studies around the world, including in the U.S. So I think we need to check both of those those reflexes, that one, we need police, and two, that professionals are kind of the gold standard, and we should always be leaning towards professionals. And if we do anything less, it's because we're giving poor communities inferior care. That's not, in fact, the case. Our current models of care are not effective in the U.S. Let, let me ask you about the CARE pilot program that you yeah. talked about. Um, another thing that, that critics would say, and I, I, there's been reporting on this, that, um, and, and, you know, I don't have the latest numbers, so please, if you do, mm -hmm. please tell me, that, that these these responders are get to sort of pick and choose what calls they go to and that they're not really responding to that many and that we're not going to have a true test of this until they're out at a lot more calls that maybe are a little bit sort of riskier than the ones they're responding to right now. Sure. That's true. When you have a pilot program, it's a pilot program. It's not something, you know, developed at scale yet. And that's the whole purpose of doing a pilot program. If you're going to say that, I don't mean you, I just mean if, no, if a cynic is going to say, look, you did the pilot program and you had a small sample and it, yeah, it shows what you said it was going to show, but it doesn't count because it wasn't enough cases. Well, what's the point of doing pilots then? <laughs> so uh, we can't just do infinite pilot programs forever and always refuse to scale things up, which mm -hmm. is something that the academic infrastructure in the U.S. Um, facilitates. It's good for professors to perpetually doing experimental studies. We don't really have a, a system that's very well established for taking good data and then building public systems. This is something that hasn't really been done so much in the U.S., but we do have data from other cities. So Denver has a really, really good example of this. It's much bigger than the CARE pilot. That's that There's a study uh, uh, published in Science Advances, which is a very prestigious journal, looking at the effectiveness of this system, and it showed the same kind of data that we get from the, from the CARE pilot in Chicago. And we've seen this in countless places around the country. So this idea that we need to wait for data more, yet again, yet again, more data, more data, before we can actually invest in public systems, I think is a red herring and is a distraction. You, you mentioned Denver. One part of, of the sort of debate that's gone on in Denver is about the police budget. You believe that the way that we can properly fund, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but, but you believe that the way we can properly fund the kind of treatment and the kind of care you're talking about is to decrease the CPD budget. Is that right? I think that we live in a country where over the last 40 years, police budgets have been steadily increasing while other public systems have been steadily defunded. And I think that's incompatible with building effective public care systems and public safety systems. We do not have effective public safety in the U.S. compared to peer nations, peer wealthy nations in Europe, for example. We do not have effective care systems, neither health care nor public health nor basic community care. And that's a product of our funding decisions. So in Chicago right now, the police budget consumes 35% of the city budget officially on paper. If you account for indirect costs, so maintaining assets, et cetera, there are estimates that it's closer probably to about 50% of the city budget. If you're taking 50% of your budget as a large city and devoting it to surveillance and punishment and not to preventative infrastructure and supportive care, what do you think is going to happen? It's, 
it's quite obvious what happens. We have a really, really poor public infrastructure for care and safety. So I think if you're going to build systems that, as you mentioned earlier, require a lot of workers, they require major public investment, you have to find that money somewhere. Where are you going to find it in a city that spends 50% of its budget effectively on the police? In the police budget. Now, also, TNT, treatment of trauma, part of what it's doing is taking tasks away from police that police do not want to have. Police repeatedly around the country, including Chicago, complain about the fact that they're constantly asked to respond to mental health crises, for which they're unprepared, they are not properly trained, they themselves feel like they're at risk, they know they're at risk for making an error, they don't want to be in this situation. 40,000 calls to CPD were responded to in 2019 that contained a mental health component. So if we're taking those tasks away from police, then why would we leave the money that's been devoted to allowing police to respond to those tasks with the police rather than funding this alternative infrastructure? It just It's a rational kind of reallocation of resources that goes along with the tasks. I think until we confront the necessity of addressing the fact that police budgets are consuming so much of our public resources and taking away, there's opportunity cost entailed in that. That means when you spend money on one thing, you can't spend another thing. Mm. Until we confront that, we will not be able to build effective public care systems in the U.S. or in Chicago. So so I think because of my own interest in reporting background, yeah. I focused a lot on, on 911 response, and, and we're just about out of time. I, yeah. I should mention, I mentioned expanding and reopening mental health centers is, is part of treatment, not trauma. Yeah. In the budget process for 2024, Mayor Johnson committed to opening two mental health clinics. He pledged $66 million for staffing. In your view, is this enough? No. And $66 million was not for staffing the mental health centers. That was that was effectively almost the sum total of the city allocation to CDPH, uh, the Chicago Department of Public Health. A major problem that we have is that only five, roughly 5 to 7% of the Chicago Department of Public Health budget actually comes from the city. They are forced to rely on competitive grants they apply for with the federal government to be able to fund programs. That's not true in other cities. Like in, in New York, 50% of the budget comes from the city for Chicago Department of Public Health, or sorry, the New York Department of of, of health and mental hygiene. Uh, 30% comes from the state. Chicago gets no state money, barely any city money, and we're relying on federal grants. It doesn't work. So we need to change that. Um, but that's that two, the two centers that you just spoke about and the $66 million or $76 million the city is sending to Chicago Department of Health is not enough. But it's a start. And it's a, a signal that Brandon Johnson is committed to working with the Collaborative for Community Wellness, which has been pushing TNT, uh, and is trying to now roll out a plan to more substantially fund this in the years ahead. Now, we'll see if he's up to that challenge, because that will require a fight. will require a political fight with the police budget and others Un that are involved. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. That's Eric Reinhardt, a resident physician and political anthropologist of public health and law at Northwestern University. Thanks so much.